Welcome everyone to LSE for this online event. My name is Minoush Shafiq and I'm the Director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I'm very pleased to be here with this incredible panel to discuss global health and economics. The COVID-19 pandemic has posed huge challenges to all sectors of society and underscored the centrality of human health and well-being to the survival of our economies and societies. In the beginning, people talked about the trade-off between lives and livelihoods, but it became quickly apparent that the two were inextricably intertwined. The pandemic has also exposed huge social disparities and inequities across the world by race, by gender, by economic circumstances, and highlighted the need for, for global solidarity and multilateralism to get a good response to this crisis, although arguably we've had too little of that multilateralism in this crisis. Today's discussion will explore the human and economic value of health in the era of COVID-19, the need to invest in a wide range of essential sectors, from preparedness and universal health coverage to equitable delivery of vaccines in order to enable everyone to achieve the highest levels of health and well-being, and also for our economies to thrive. We are incredibly lucky today to have Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, who is the Director General of the World Health Organization. He started his job in May of 2017 and has been in more or less nonstop crisis management mode since then, starting with Ebola. And then I think being the first WHO Director General to preside over a truly global pandemic. He is joined by Professor Mariana Mazzucato, who is Professor of Economics of Innovation and Public Value at University College London, where she's the founding director of the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. We're also joined by our own Claire Wenham, who is Assistant Professor of Global Health Policy at the LSE. She specializes in global health security, the politics and policy of pandemic preparedness and outbreak response, and has worked on an array of pandemics ranging from influenza, Ebola, and Zika. So uh, just a few practicalities for those Twitter users in the audience. The hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE COVID-19. And this event is going to be recorded and hopefully made available as a podcast afterwards. There'll be a chance for questions after the initial uh, presentations. We'll have a first round of questions from some students who've joined us, and then we'll open it up to the audience. But First, I'd like to turn it to Dr. Tedros, who will give his opening remarks before the panel takes questions. Dr. Tedros, over to you. Baroness Minush, and thank you for hosting this event today. And it's a great honor to join you. And Professor Mariana Mazzucato, my friend, Dr. Claire Wenham, distinguished guests, dear colleagues and friends. Thank you all for joining us today for this very important conversation. I don't need to tell you that COVID-19 is an unprecedented global crisis that has shaken the foundations of social, political, and economic security. The pandemic has exposed and exploited the gaps in our health systems and the inequalities of our societies. It has overwhelmed health systems in even the world's strongest economies. In some public debate, 
The response to the pandemic has been framed as the choice between health and the economy. But that's a false choice. We do not have to choose between lives and livelihoods. They always go together. For years, WHO has been trying to make the economy case for investing in health. And the pandemic has made the case all too clearly. Health and the economy, development and stability are integrated and interdependent. When people are healthy, they can learn, earn, and innovate. When people are sick, the whole of society suffers. A major health emergency can derail a society and an economy. We have seen that. People and communities who are already vulnerable suffer the most. But investments in health systems don't just prevent damage. They can also boost the economy. For example, the UN Commission on Health, Employment and Economic Growth has projected the creation of about 40 million new health sector jobs by 2030 globally. This is critical for health, but also means that more people will receive a regular salary. And because women make up 70% of the global health workforce, jobs for health workers are also an investment in gender equality. However, not all investments in health are created equal. And how countries finance health can also have implications beyond the health sector. For example, linking health insurance to employment can cause significant inequalities in societies with a large informal sector or when a sudden economic downturn causes job losses as we have seen with COVID-19. But the economics of health go far beyond the health system itself. In fact, the most cost-effective investments in health are those that prevent or delay people needing to use the health system by addressing the reasons people get sick and die. In the food they eat, the water they drink, the air they breathe, and the conditions in which they live and work. As you know, countries spend billions treating lung cancer instead of stopping the scourge of tobacco. Treating obesity, diabetes, and heart disease instead of promoting healthy diets. Treating injuries instead of making roads safer. Treating depression instead of promoting mental health. And responding to outbreaks instead of investing in preparedness. We need to make different choices. Addressing the key public health challenges of today 
and the coming years requires that we reach beyond the health sector to tackle the social, economic, and commercial determinants of health. We know, for example, that taxes on tobacco help to reduce consumption, and similar approaches are needed to address the health effects of alcohol, sugar, and fossil fuels. So we don't just need more investment in public health. We must also rethink how we value health. The time has come for a new narrative that sees health and health systems not as costs, but investments that are the foundation of productive, resilient, and stable economies. And we need to elevate health as a social goal, making it a core objective of economic policies. That's why WHO is establishing a new Council on the Economics of Health for All, chaired by my good friend, Professor Mariana Mazzucato, to focus on the links between health and sustainable, inclusive and innovation-led economic growth. So thank you so much, Grace Mille, Mariana, for agreeing to chair the Council, and I look forward to our work together. My, friend, <clears throat> my friends, your partnership is essential, not only for defeating this pandemic, but for building the healthier, safer, and fairer world we all want. Before I conclude, I wish you all Happy St. Patrick's Day. I thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Tadros. You've got us off to a great start. Let me turn uh, now to Mariana and Claire and ask you both, from your perspective, can we put a value on health and should we? And how, is, how important is the connection between the health of individuals and communities and that of the economy as a whole, from the cost of delivering care to return on investment? in health. Uh, maybe I'll start with Mariana and then turn to Claire. It's a great question. And I think, you know, it has been asked. And I think the problem is how it's been asked and then how it's been answered. We need to change that. So for example, you will have had many people say, of course, we need to be investing in health. And that's good for the economy. What we're trying to do in the council is to reverse that. So we want health for all. And then we backtrack, what does it mean for the economy? What does it mean for how we value healthcare exactly as Dr. Tedros was saying as an investment and not as a cost? But that also requires accounting for it in GDP, not just literally in terms of the expenditure, the cost of the nurses, the hospitals and the doctors, but also the value of what's actually created. Because even with a given amount of money, it depends how we're resourcing it, how we're imagining it, the actual effect that it has in society. If we don't have a way to capture that, then by definition, we will only have the input measure. And you'll know that productivity is output per input. If we only have the, the cost, by definition, it gets talked about just as an expenditure. But the other issue is, especially in health, but this is also true in other areas, value is actually collectively created, right? So how do we actually value, for example, the public contribution to the vaccines, to all the different therapies. Unfortunately, we don't have a pricing model, right? That has actually been able to capture that. So value-based pricing, which is the model that we use to um, 
put prices on drugs doesn't actually take into account the, the billions that are spent on, you know, remdesivir now, a therapy for, uh, 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 for COVID, where the price set by Gilead doesn't take into account the public contribution. We had this with uh, sofosbuvir, um, uh, another drug, which had, you know, a billion spent by the public sector and then was being sold for over 80,000 for a 12-week dosage. So both in terms of the pricing, in terms of how we govern the intellectual property rights, all of this in the end is also about how we think about value as collectively created. But just coming back quickly to that first point, the point is not invest in health because it's good for the economy. It's invest in health for all because it is an objective, good in and of itself, and then backtrack on what it actually means for all these other questions about financing, about the structure of public-private partnerships, about how we account for it in GDP, and so on. So we really need to talk about it as an objective in and of itself, independent of the economy, and then make sure that we actually structure the economy in order to deliver it. Claire? Um, thanks. And, and just to say, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here with such an esteemed panel, but with a big caveat, which is I'm not an economist. So I'm going to come at this from a slightly different perspective. And I think when we think about the value of health and um, picking up on some of the things that Dr. Tedros has mentioned about the, the, the healthcare workforce, we need to think about a care economy. And I think we have to recognize an economy which you know, puts value on the unseen and the invisible labor, which often happens in healthcare systems, in homes, and which really COVID has exposed uh, and shown quite how much of this goes on, which is unrecognized. So for example, we know that there's a shortfall of healthcare workers. And so a good investment would be to invest in them. It's going to be you know, 18 million uh, shortfall by 2030. And so we need an investment both to ensure that, that it's those, those people are there to provide health for all, but also then there's the surge capacity at a time of crisis and now. And particularly people like community healthcare workers, the most undervalued, underpaid uh, people in our, in our healthcare systems, and try and find some way of attributing you know, monetary or other value to the work that they do. And this extends not just to healthcare, but to social care, childcare. And it's not just good for well-being, right? It's not just going to give us a, a healthier, happier society if we're all cared for and know that there is that support. But we also know that there are economic outputs from this. You know, it create if you, if you invest in the care sector, you see increased jobs, particularly for women and ethnic minorities who often perform this, this labor. But there's also a multiplier effect. Some recent research from the US has shown that, you know, if you pay healthcare workers better, they will then invest that money, you know, elsewhere in the economy and create jobs elsewhere. And this research has also shown it has actually a bigger stimulus effect investing in the care sector than it does in the construction industry, which is often what's invested in in the wake of, of crises. And so we need to recognize this and try and think of ways to incorporate this care-based thinking and you know, recognize that those people who we've deemed to be essential during this crisis are the backbone of our healthcare system. And it's also not just the, the paid work in our healthcare system, but we need to recognize all the unpaid care that goes on. And this has, again, been massively exposed in the coronavirus crisis. Uh, the UN last year estimated that it was 23 2.35% of total GDP globally, the equivalent of $1.5 trillion, which is done uh, just in the unpaid healthcare sector. It goes up to $11 trillion if you include all unpaid care in the, the kind of care sector more broadly. 
And we know that this, again, is, is just we need to think more holistically about how to recognise this, how to ensure that there are social protections in place, because ultimately COVID has, has visibilised this unpaid care burden. And, you know, we've seen that when crisis hits, the economy has stalled because parents and carers have had to be at home being parents and carers because the paid role that they've been paying for for this service isn't available anymore. And so we need to find a way in the way we conceptualize, um, you know, economics and health to kind of consider this human element. And I think this is going to become more important as we go forward with our aging populations who are going to need, you know, even more care. And where's that going to come from and how are we going to pay for it? Okay, thank you, Claire. Dr. Tedros, I'd like to come back to you, to your remarks about the nexus between health and the the economy. And I wanted to ask you, how would the world look differently when it comes to the economic dimensions of health? How could we do this differently? And what was the inspiration behind you creating the WHO Council on the Economics of Health for All? What are you aiming to change in terms of how people see these issues? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Maybe I will start from the second one on the Economic Council. Uh, because I would like to recognize people who have um, um, suggested this uh, idea. It was uh, in 2019, September. Um, I don't know, maybe you have uh, come across that article in Financial Times, um, Alan Donnelly and Ilona Kikbush uh, had an op-ed uh, arguing that uh, chief economist for WHO would be important because linking health and the economy is, is really key because health is central to economic development. Of course, health as an end itself, as a rights issue, as Mariana said, and also a means to development. And which is, so if you are promoting health for all, you need to factor in uh, what do you benefit from it. So health for all, an end in itself, but health for all, a means to development. So they argued actually very convincingly that a chief economist for WHO is long overdue. (laughs) And I, I was convinced actually Um, And I was asking my colleagues since I became DG to give me crazy ideas. (laughs) Then these guys actually gave me a very good idea, whether you call it crazy or not, that I needed to consider. Um, So I accepted that and we started working on this. This is actually before COVID. So it made sense before COVID, but even it makes more sense during COVID, we can only reinforce the centrality of health because of COVID. So I accepted and started working on it with my colleagues. But then we reversed the um, recommendation, though. They came up with a proposal to have a council, uh, I mean a chief scientist, but we reversed it. We started from the Economic Council and then we said we can have the chief economist uh, for WHO at a later stage after we started with the council. 
So in the near future, we will have also the chief uh, economist. Um, and the council's role, you know, I would actually be happy to read for you one thing that was written in the statement. Uh, so I'm not economist like Claire, so I don't want to <laughs> to uh, make a mistake in what I say. Uh, it says in the concept note, it's the opening. The Council on the Economics of Health for All brings together different areas of policy, which can no longer be seen separately from health. Social policy, economic policy, and innovation policy. Its mission is to bring health and well-being at the center of how we think about purpose, value, and growth. It provides a new approach to shape the economy with the objective of building healthy societies that are just, inclusive, equitable, and sustainable. So, um, I, I'm, I'm actually glad that we're bringing the economic dimension to health because that will reinforce the centrality of health. And many countries have struggled and are struggling because of lack of investment or poor investment in health because they didn't identify health as a center for development and because they didn't consider health as a fundamental human right and they didn't take health as a means to development. So the Economic Council, which is led by Mariana, I'm really uh, glad that she agreed to chair the council, uh, will, uh, uh, you know, bring this and our hope because of the experience we have in COVID, with COVID now, uh, will, uh, you know, governments will take it seriously. And there will be the political will that we have been looking for and promoting for for several decades. I think now we heard it well. I think governments have heard it well. And I hope this is the time actually uh, for, for um, action. And then going to the first question, I think the mission of the council actually uh, uh, addressed it. Whether it's before COVID or now during COVID or after COVID, there is the centrality of health now, which is clearly understood. Um, and when we say centrality of health, it's health for all. When we say health for all, it's universal health coverage with a strong primary health care foundation, uh, investment in public health that can really help in driving actually uh, sustainable uh, growth. And if we are going to learn anything from COVID-19, it's a lesson that we did it. We were not willing to learn, but we are now learning the hard way. And the issue is the need for commitment uh, to really learn and take it seriously and invest in health and identify the centrality of health. But the concept uh, which was prepared for the economics uh, of health for all for the council, uh, 
I think tell, tells, tells it uh, all. So thank you so much again, uh, Baroness uh, Minush. Thank you so much. Uh, certainly all the research that we've done at the LSC in terms of what determines people's well-being ranks physical and mental health as the number one issue, not income, but physical and mental health, followed by the quality of your relationships and sense of community, followed by the quality of your work. And income features very low down that list in terms of what determines people's well-being, which would very much support the perspective that you're bringing. Now I'm going to turn over to... Sure, Mariana, go ahead. One of the things that we set out very clearly in the initial manifesto um, of the council is that this really does require a different lens also on the problem as I was talking about. So, for example, the policy-making framework can't just be there to fill a gap in the system or to correct a market failure. In order to actively, you know, produce an economy that's more inclusive and more sustainable and has health for all at the center... We need a market shaping and an active co-creation notion of policy, right? Less about filling the gap towards a more active shaping and co-creation. And that then means things like what Dr. Tedros has been talking about in the last months, which is it means that how we govern, for example, intellectual property rights has to have notions like collective intelligence at the center. Right? So the idea of a patent pool, which is the vaccine, it's not just a random idea because it's a good idea. It's actually at the center of how do you shape, you know, uh, uh, the knowledge governance in such a way that it actually meets a health for all objective. And I think that's really what we're, where the council is going to be very important, which is to put forth very concrete policy proposals that are about how do you shape public, private and third sector partnerships with that concept. And if it doesn't actually then translate, for example, into how do we govern intellectual property rights, which we know have been actually abused in the health uh, area, then we're not going to achieve our, our mission. Thank you. Very good. Thank you, Maria. I'm now going to turn over to two students who've joined us who will moderate the next part of the event. And so I'll introduce Gwen Kasatsa, who's a master's student at UCL in the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, and Jessica Walters, who's a master's student in international health policy at the LSE. Over to Gwen and Jessica. Thank you, Manoush. Um, we'd like to quickly thank Dr. Tedros, Dr. Wenham and Professor Mazzucato for their time today and also thank our fellow students who submitted these questions to us. Um, they're very thought provoking and we wish we had time to answer them all. But I think we will possibly only have time for three or four today. So Gwen and I will take turns asking the panellists these questions and I will hand over to Gwen now for the first one. Great. Hello, everyone. Um, this first question was proposed by Mohammed Ashraf, who's from Malaysia and currently at the LSE Department of Social Policy. Uh, thank you, Mohammed, so much for your question. Um, let's start with you, Dr. Tedros. Um, how has the pandemic changed the WHO's future plan and strategy in building a more interconnected and progressive healthcare infrastructure between countries? Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you very much for that question. I don't know why Nicolas turned his uh, YouTube, uh, his uh, video off because we are a minority. So I, <laughs> there is no gender balance. So I'm complaining. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a very good question. Um, I, I, I would like to go back actually to 2017. Um, uh, as soon as I became a director general of uh, WHO, 
I had a chance to speak at the Columbia University in 2017, September. That was actually my first major speech. And I told a story about how the 1918 flu started. Uh, and I also told the audience that the world is still unprepared and the same thing can happen again. And, you know, unprecedented pandemic could kill, uh, you know, millions. I'm really, I, I feel sorry now to have said that, but to be honest, um, that was what we saw as WHO in 2017 and even before before then. And what we said then is happening. But not only we said it, uh, but the preparation for the next pandemic was intensifying at the time. And we were introducing some change. And even many of my colleagues and myself, when we are asked to you know, tell what wakes up at night, we say pandemic. That's what comes to mind. Before even COVID, we were scared. So we started the change uh, and we were intensifying the change then. Actually, it started before even I, I came, but we introduced significant change in how we prepare and respond to emergencies. And some of the major uh, changes we have made were, for instance, the establishment of the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board. And if you remember, its 2019 first repair report after the establishment was uh, showing, I mean, it showed that the world is unprepared. And it says the world, I, if I remember the, the, the title uh, right, it says the world at risk. And not only we established GPMB, the Global Independent Monitoring Board to tell the world the truth, but we established the independent, the Division of uh, Preparedness and Response in, in WHO, the Science Division. And not only that, the transformation was uh, focusing on three major issues, driving impact at country level, and to make WHO really fit for uh, purpose, and leveraging uh, partners, because without partnership, we cannot really fight a pandemic like, like this one. So the whole change in our organization was putting uh, the pandemics at the center. So before even COVID, we were very worried and we already started building. But now, considering the unprecedented nature of this uh, COVID pandemic, we believe that we have to learn more and we cannot do it an internal learning process only. And that's why based on the resolution of the World Health Assembly, I appointed the co-chairs of the independent panel for the pandemic review, uh, President Serliff and Prime Minister uh, Helen Clark, who are now leading a panel to learn from this pandemic seriously. And of course, uh, I have also established the IHR review panel, which is led by Professor Lothar uh, Wieler, uh, who will also understand what we can learn from this pandemic. So what will come 
you know, as <laughs> in the future, will depend on this proper assessment that are being done by the two panels newly established, including the previously existing independent oversight uh, advisory committee uh, on, on emergencies. So the three entities will give us the lessons learned, the recommendations, and then we will uh, continue to change uh, WHO and also the global response uh, based on, on the recommendations. But I hope the recommendations not only will be about the global response like WHO and other partners, but it will be about the national capacity, the national response also. So it's the change at all levels, starting from the country. Central is actually country. From country to regional and headquarters level, that will bring better preparedness for the future and avert anything like what we saw now. Thank you. Really important considerations. Professor Mazzucato, how do we make the most of this opportunity? Um, how do we not waste a crisis as we, as we go forward? Great Sorry? Over to you, Professor Mazzucato. Yeah. yeah, thanks for the question. So, I mean, first, just to add to um, what Dr. Tepperth was saying, I think we really need to learn uh, from the international experience. You know, not every country has governed this crisis in the same way. And some countries like Vietnam or the state of Kerala in India have actually done remarkably well, given also their path on the developmental trajectory. And that isn't a coincidence. It's, it's very much actually a result of the investments that they have been making um, over the last years within also their you know, public administration. Right. And so, you know, in the UK, for example, we've had a very different experience with the vaccine rollout, which has been nested within a strong public health system distributed at the community level with GP practices versus how we govern, say, the test and trace system, which was basically outsourced to consulting companies. So that's in itself a lesson. But really globally investing within you know, the public administration, which is also the administration of knowing how to deal, for example, with a problem which is not, you know, specifically on health, but it's COVID related, things like the digital divide with all the students, you know, locked down at home, not actually experiencing their human right to education in the same way due to these strong inequalities that we know that affect how people access their opportunities to 21st century technology. Those kinds of problems like the digital divide have to be very much confronted within also, you know, different levels of government. And if we have been outsourcing the brain of government, that's a problem. And I do really think that that's a, you know, one of the key lessons, but also we need to reimagine the welfare state, you know, had this crisis, and I don't know, Tedros, if you uh, agree with this, but had this crisis begun in Africa, the whole world would have been worse off. Why? Because actually many health systems in Africa are much weaker than they are in China, right? So we literally are, only as healthy as our neighbor is on our street, in our city, in our nation, but globally. So we have to hopefully be investing in global health systems in order also to be globally better off. And unfortunately there as well, if you look at you know, some of the discussions about the welfare state, it's kind of seen as this old thing that we now just need to you know, move away from. And, and actually we need to reimagine the welfare state, public education, public transport, public health are all part of a welfare state but it can't just be about throwing money at it, even when it's starved. It really requires our full creativity, you know, uh, uh, in, 
in terms of really asking what we need from it and also really working together to build a more resilient society. Um, and lastly, I do think that the issue of corporate governance needs to be addressed. Um, you know, all the problems we are currently facing from climate change to the global health pandemic require both business and governments and civil society organizations to work together in new ways. And unfortunately, what we've seen in the last half century is some problems with corporate governance, right? A lot of value getting extracted out of the system. Over $4 trillion have been spent on share buybacks uh, by the uh, global 500, um, S&P 500 companies in the last 10 years. And luckily there's a really stimulating conversation within large corporates about stakeholder value, right? So not just maximizing shares, but maximizing this broader notion of value well, this is a great moment, the COVID moment, which is a tragic moment, but it's a great moment to test how serious we are about stakeholder value. It can't just be within corporate governance. It has to be at the center of how all the different value creating actors interact. And hence my point before about the vaccine. You know, if we can't implement stakeholder value with vaccine production, then let's not talk about it. Um, you know, what does it mean again in terms of also conditionalities with the COVID recovery funds? They shouldn't, you know, companies can't just get bailed out like the airlines. We should perhaps have some conditions there to make sure that the airlines are also committing to reducing their carbon emissions in the future. And that's something, by the way, that some countries have done and some haven't. So, again, really getting a practical approach to what we can learn from this experience, which has been tragic in terms of what works, what doesn't. And by the way, both Austria and Denmark have conditions with the COVID recovery funds that companies that have been using tax havens cannot access the recovery funds. You know, it's not rocket science, it's a great idea, but this really is a moment I think for experimentation in terms of more symbiotic, mutualistic, public-private partnerships. And let's make sure that that's also at the center of our council's discussion. Thank you so much. Over to you, Jess, for the next question. Yep. Thanks, Gwen. So the second question is from Eloise Jones, who is from the US and is currently at the UCL Institute for Global Health. And this question is for you, Dr. Wenham. So what lessons can we learn from the gender dynamic of the COVID-19 pandemic and the importance of gender equality in the Health for All mission? Thank you for that question. So I think the first thing to say is that the gendered inequalities we're experiencing and seeing across the COVID pandemic aren't new. They are exactly the same uh, inequalities and ways we experienced it during other crises, particularly health crises. We saw it during Zika. We saw it during Ebola. We see it during cholera crises. It's just it's now on a massive scale. It's, it's every woman around the world is experiencing it to some effect. And we're seeing it in multiple different ways. So you can see it in terms of uh, access to sexual reproductive health services, access to maternity care. We know that in lots of parts of the world, including here in the UK, that there's been cessation of services or changes to services, which is putting women at risk of being able to access the very care they need. We are seeing alarming trends. Uh, there's some research that came out last year from Nepal showing increased rates of, of stillbirth and maternal mortality as a consequence of this. So this is having you know, real life impacts. We see it in the significant rates we've seen of increase against violence against women across the world. I mean, I was just talking yesterday to some colleagues in Colombia who were saying there's been a 150% increase in uh, in calls to domestic violence hotlines in Colombia. And that, again, is a, a story across the world. You know, stay at home isn't a safe place for many women. 
And so we have to, you know, there, there could be mitigations put in place to try and minimize this. And we are seeing some innovation coming through now. In Czechoslovakia, for example, they've trained all postal workers to recognize domestic violence because in the absence of interactions in society, the postal staff are the only people who actually go day to day to houses and see women. And then there's this huge economic cost, which we're seeing, which we're seeing women absorb effectively. So, you know, we've seen, for example, that that even in the UK, within three months, we saw a five percentage drop of women's participation in the labor market in 2020. And this is a global trend, right? In, in America, in Italy, we're seeing four to five times the amount of women lose their jobs compared to men. And, um, you know, then think about that in lower middle income countries. We're seeing up to maybe 100 million additional women living in extreme poverty this year, mainly because they're employed in the informal sector. There's no social protection coming in for them. And those jobs don't exist if people are interacting in society. And, you know, this is a mixture of there's a mixture of reasons for this. Partly it's because of the sectors of the economy women work in, which are the ones who've been disproportionately hit by the intervention. So uh, working in retail, hospitality, tourism are things which have automatically stopped overnight and they disproportionately employ women. But it's also because women have absorbed the labor within the homes associated with the additional care that's going on. So globally, we know that women are now doing an extra 6.1 hours of unpaid labor a day compared to men's 4.7 hours a day. So, you know, where, why, why are women absorbing this labor? Because it's absorbing this labor, which for many women is forcing them out of the labor market because they simply can't do both. Or some people are, and that's a whole different story. But we're seeing that, you know, it's a mixture of cultural gender norms over who's supposed to be doing what, you know, what and where. It's about which sectors are shut. And then it's simply about the gender pay gap, which is a story across you know, most countries that you're going to, the person who doesn't earn them the least is going to stay at home. And this has, you know, short term effects. So, you know, we're, we're doing a big project at the moment across 12 different countries looking at the gendered effects of the pandemic. And we're seeing the same story again and again, which is really rare because gender is so context specific. But what we're seeing is a huge mental health burden on women, particularly younger women. It's inversely proportional to age. And this has longer term effects, too. So some some excellent work by colleagues at LSE uh, showed during the Ebola outbreak that in the wake of the crisis, within a year, you'd had 63 percent of men return to work, but only 17 percent of women. And today, you know, five years after the Zika crisis, 90% 90% of women who had children born without with congenital Zika syndrome still aren't in work. So this has really long-term repercussions. And I think what's important is there are things we can do to try and mitigate some of this. There are public policy interventions, social protection efforts, which we can put in place to stop this you know, huge rollback of gender equality going forward. And I think that this is partly, you know, this is lies at the feet of states and governments to do something about this. But I also think that, that, that Dr. Tedros and his excellent team at the WHO can be doing things, you know, making sure that policy is gender mainstreamed, making sure that in the international health regulations, governments are required to report on how women are faring, right, differently to men and differently to non-binary genders, and holding governments to account for not just the epidemiological data, but also for the broader socioeconomic data and making sure that that's a conversation that can be had, you know, at multiple stages of government. 
Thank you, Dr. Wenham. I'll hand back to Gwen now for the final question. More question before we, we hand over. So this one was proposed by Anurum from Estonia, who's a student at the LSE Department of Health Policy. So thank you, Anu, for your question. Um, Professor Mazzucato, um, let me turn to you. Um, is there any concern that post-COVID-19 countries might overly focus on health system capacity building, kind of ne neglect longer term public health challenges like alcoholism, antimicrobial resistance and obesity? So areas where the focus had shifted to prior to 2020. Great question. Um, I mean, of course, there is that risk. And with any crisis, there's the risk that we think that it can just be solved by flooding the system, you know, with liquidity, a, you know, a stimulus, because we just need to, you know, get growth going again. So this idea of building back better, which is on the tip of many people's tongues, the question is, how do we actually do that? Right? How can we make sure, for example, you know, in the US, you know, a, a country that now is going to have a close to $2 trillion stimulus package. What does it mean to build back better there, right? What does it mean to make sure that we don't do what happened with the financial crisis where all that liquidity that was put in to prevent you know, this big recession to turn into a, a proper depression and to have the whole financial system come down with it, most of that liquidity generation just ended up back in the financial sector. Um, in fact, a lot of the way that we currently create finance ends up back into FIRE, F-I-R-E, finance, insurance, and real estate. So the first thing is we absolutely need to make sure that these different types of stimulus packages actually reach the real economy, right? That it doesn't just kind of, you know, flood different parts of finance. The second that is what part of the real economy? And as I already mentioned, we have to definitely make sure it strengthens our healthcare systems, that's a no-brainer. But we also need to put health at the center, for example, of all the different areas, right? Climate and health. I mean, we know also from the scientists showing that a lot of the problems that we might also have in the future with different viruses come from, you know, areas like the permafrost melting, right? So how do we actually put health and well-being at the center of what we in the Institute called mission-oriented policies, right? So if you think of how countries do industrial strategies, which by the way are back after years of being a blasphemy, instead of having an industrial strategy that has you know, health as a sector being you know, funded or transport as a sector being financed or you know, aerospace, automobiles, and so on, what does it mean really to focus on the problems that we're facing? You know, whether they're global problems like a you know, plastic-free ocean, uh, whether it's um, you know, at a city level, having a carbon-neutral city agenda, whether it's you know, something that we're experiencing now in London with you know, knife crime, what does it mean to have a zero knife crime you know, agenda? and having all our different sectors work together to solve that, right? So this idea of having a purpose-driven industrial strategy, a purpose-driven innovation policy means less handouts to random sectors that you know, any minister might come up with their top key sectors in really focusing on global problems with the health problems, of course, being central to that, but getting all our sectors from AI, nutrition, uh, uh, you know, uh, also behavioral changes, transport, the future of mobility challenges that we have. And I think, you know, this really needs to be a redesign of the policymaking space itself. But the other thing I just want to quickly say in terms of, you know, health is there's no lack of public money actually going into areas like, say, um, you know, drug research. The problem is how do we make sure that we open up this idea of, again, market shaping and market creation, as I was talking about before. So if you look at, for example, in the US, where they spend $40 billion a year in drug innovation through the National Institutes of Health, 
almost all of that goes to actual medicines. There's very little, sorry, um, health innovation, very little of, of that goes beyond drugs. So very little on diagnostics, surgical treatments, preventative lifestyle changes. So this idea that we actually redefine the market itself, right, to go beyond just kind of fixing a drug problem really requires, again, a different framing for the public sector investment in health itself. So I think both of those issues, how do you put health at the center of how we actually design things like industrial strategy um, and health problems that require lots of different sectors to change, but also get a much more bold approach of public finance. So it really is extending the frontier of what we even think in terms of the health market to also include these other areas and not just the pharmaceuticalization, as some have called it, of public investment. I think both of those will be very important. Thank you, Professor Mazzucato. Um, That is unfortunately all Gwen and I have time for today. So we'd just like to thank the panel again for this amazing opportunity to ask you questions and your amazing responses um, and thank the students who submitted all the questions into us. So I will hand back to Manoush now for the final question. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Gwen. Now we've got time for a few questions from the audience and I'll start with Dr. Tadros. We've got lots of questions around vaccine nationalism and equity. I'll just give you a sample from Manal Lutfi, who asks, very few companies in the world have the know-how to produce vaccines and and they're produced in rich countries. The effect is devastating for poor countries who will take years to get access to the vaccine. How can we democratize vaccine production worldwide? Yeah, thank you. That's a very important question. Um, as, as you know, uh, we um, proposed ACT Accelerator as an end game uh, for this pandemic and with two objectives. One is to accelerate the development of vaccines and second, fair distribution. Of course, on the first objective, accelerated development of vaccines and other products, uh, the success is there, the world can see. We have uh, many vaccines, actually, in less than a year after the, um, um, you know, the um, discovery of the new uh, virus. Uh, on the second one, uh, I can say that we're limping. On second objective, I mean on fair distribution. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is, and I said it in many, um, on many occasions in the past uh, a couple of months is because of uh, me first approach from many countries and what we say, the um, vaccine nationalism. Uh, As you know, um, many high-income countries started vaccination in uh, December, uh, while the first low-income country actually started, uh, I mean, got its first vaccine three weeks ago, after three months. Um, But not only that, our concern now is, one, there are many countries who haven't received vaccines, and that's a challenge, and we have a target to start vaccination in all countries before April 7, and that's being challenged. And second, um, even those countries who have started vaccination, they need to get a constant flow of vaccines. That's another challenge. And the third, which can even show you a divide between the haves and have-nots is the target for 
COVAX is 20-27% by the end of 2021, while the target for many high-income countries is more than 80% by summer. Imagine a gap between 20% and 80%. Um, so the equity problem is there. Then coming to the question, how can we democratize it? I think we, we have to start from solving the current problem and find ways to end this pandemic as soon as possible by bringing equitable distribution of vaccines now. And we can do that. It's in our hands. And we have already proposed concrete ideas. One is the voluntary um, licensing. And the second is pulled uh, patent that WHO can, can be used as a hub. And the other option we have is um, the uh, waiver, provisional waiver of the intellectual property because we are in unprecedented times. I would actually concentrate on the third one because, as you said, when at the start of this um, uh, the, you know, panel, <laughs> this thing is happening in 100 years. By the way, I'm the first DG to, to manage such um, a proportion of um, uh, unprecedented uh, pandemics. And if we cannot waive intellectual property now, then when? Why did we even have the provision in the first place in the TRIPS agreement if we cannot use it during this time? Okay. So if we're going to democratize it going forward, then we need to be serious and take action now and end this pandemic as soon as possible. For instance, if there is uh, increase, significant increase in production, and if we can have a target of 70, more than 70% of vaccination coverage in all countries by the end of this year, that will bring herd immunity and can stop the virus quickly. And meaning we will reclaim our lives and livelihoods as fast as possible, meaning that's in the interest of every nation on earth because everybody wants to have their lives and livelihoods back, but not only in the interest of every nation, but indeed in the interest of every individual on earth because we want to reclaim our lives and livelihoods. So um, we need to decide on that. Then going forward for the future, one of the investments would be local production. Uh, and we want to continue actually with the ACT Accelerator. We want to make it a long-term initiative. And for any disease X for the future, any novel virus can come in the future, any disease X. We have that, by the way, research and development for disease X before even COVID, because knowing that anything can happen. So we need to increase the production capacity and encourage or invest in local production in the developing countries as well. So for the long term, there are recommendations that we are, we are making, but how serious we are for the future will be measured by the, measure, the action we take now 
especially in the waiver of the intellectual property that's in our in our hands thank you thank you dr tadis i'm going to squeeze in another question from rob yates of chatham house for claire and for dr tadros as many of the world's great universal healthcare systems emerged out of crisis such as the uk japan and thailand do you see the covid crisis catalyzing universal healthcare reforms in other countries and if so where maybe i'll start with claire and then turn to dr tadros uh, thank you manish and thank you rob although i feel that he should be the one answering this question given his own expertise in this area um honestly my answer is i hope so uh i have a real fear that because of the way that we've seen covid roll out in places like europe in places like the uk which have really strong healthcare systems i really fear that this might be used as a excuse not to invest that you know health even even the strongest nhs couldn't cope and i think that that misses a the key point there which is the system could have coped had political leadership allowed it to and had decision making happened at the right time but i worry in the fullness of time those things might get blurred so i think you know when we talk about this we need to make sure we separate those things that actually we would be in a lot worse position here in the uk if we didn't have uhc look at the us for example and you know and that actually the problem wasn't the problem wasn't the system it was the decision making at, at which affected the system uh, i hope that you know that won't that will get that won't get lost and i hope that we will see greater investment in uhc and in preventative healthcare i mean in response to the last question that the students asked i mean we know that all the investments in public health that have been missing over the last decade in many countries as a result of austerity are you know investment in tobacco control obesity control uh, alcohol control these are all things that that are comorbidities for responding to the you know for covid right the people who are dying of covid are people who have other health issues and so we need to make sure we can tackle those because if we have a healthier society we'll have, we won't face the severe burden of ill health of the worst effects of future pandemics so in answer to the question i really hope so i have some fears but i hope that there's a, a possibility and i think you know dr tedros has been doing this for many years trying to synergize the link between uhc and global health security and i think this is the time to capitalize upon that Dr. Tavros before I turn to you I'm going to slip in another question from Sofiane Kudrea who related which is in a time of rising populist nationalism can the WHO as part of their effort and as a result of this crisis rebuild faith in the role of international organizations enabling us to be properly prepared so not just a moment to revive interest in universal healthcare but also to restore faith in international organizations and you will have the last word no thank you thank you very much i mean these are two very important questions then i will start from the first one um i i i believe that i think the world and many leaders now understand the centrality of health and i hope they will take the basic um principle that's health as a fundamental human right and if it's not in their constitution that and i hope many countries will decide to put it in their constitution 
we have a good number of countries who have held as a fundamental human right in their constitution. So my wish is for all countries on earth uh, to have that in their constitution, because we have learned the centrality of health the hardest way. So that's my first wish, and that I hope there is enough, I think, learning now, and we will do it. And uh, what you said about, for instance, let's take the UK NHS, Lord Beveridge, immediately after Second World War, when UK's economy was on its knee, they, they decided to invest. So you can't even uh, have an excuse of saying, oh, my economy is really in tatters, I cannot have uh, health for all. You can decide in whatever economic uh, development or uh, tal stage you, you are. So I think that's a big lesson. But I fully agree also with Claire that even when you have a very good system, it, that leads me to your second question, by the way. Without leadership, it means nothing. And we, we have seen it in many instances. Um, for instance, the experts, based on their findings, recommend something. The political leaders go the other way. If political leadership doesn't support the scientists and experts, doesn't focus on evidence, then it could actually fuel the pandemic or any health problem that we have. When politics supports the experts, evidence and science, it can accelerate actually the uh, right intervention and you can control or uh, uh, get rid of a pandemic like, like, like this. So if I take one of the lessons we have learned actually in the past one year of the pandemic, when politics doesn't support science and evidence, even if you have the best system, it doesn't work. You, because you, you will not use the total, what do you call it, potential of, of the system. So whatever system you have, the leadership will all, always be important, as, as I think Claire, uh, Claire, Claire said. So going forward, we need health as a fundamental human right in our constitutions and invest. And second, we need to have the political leadership that focuses on science and evidence and doesn't politicize. But the other element is, Investment in health doesn't mean that investment in uh, high, what do you call it, cutting edge technology, medicine, specialty, subspecialty only. We can invest on that, we should. But for pandemic preparedness, the major investment is in public health, in primary health care. And when you have even a very strong national health system that's financed through public financing. If the investment in public health or primary health care is low and you have the cutting edge technology, it doesn't work when pandemics comes. And we have seen it. Many countries, high income countries were surprised because their investment was in the cutting edge technology, specialty, subspecialty, but the public health and primary health care was neglected. So that's why we have been saying for many years now, Health for All, UHC, with a strong foundation of primary health care, 
that responds, prevents, detects, and responds to outbreaks or pandemics, epidemics quickly. Do you know, it's just a paradox, actually, and very puzzling. You mentioned Ebola earlier. We were doing contact tracing of thousands in a place like North Kivu, where security is a problem, where armed groups operate, 17 of them, thousands a day, while many high-income countries cannot do contact tracing and said, we cannot do contact tracing because there is no public health, there is no primary health care. But you need to test, identify where the cases are, do the contact tracing, and before it grows into clustering, you finish it, or before it gets into community transmission, you, you, you finish it. So that shows you when we say good national health system, it means the whole of it, starting from the public and the primary health care up to the cutting edge technology, not just investment in medicine that will show the strings of any uh, health system. So the lesson we have drawn during this pandemic is a lesson for everybody, low income, middle income, high income, the necessity of investing in the whole, not just part of health, health healthcare, health systems, or health, not healthcare, actually health, in all its aspects. Uh, and um, still it's worth uh, putting health as a fundamental human right and invest in it. And I hope many countries will, 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 will do that. And I want to see, I will start reading the constitution of countries, so who, is, who is putting it and <laughs> not. Thank you. Fantastic. I think actually we, we can run for until uh, 1.30, over 20 minutes, which is a good thing because we've got 119 questions from the audience. <laughs> we'll get to them all. Uh, but the next one I'm going to give to Mariana related to climate change. And she asks, from a point of view of global health, what should be the strategic focus in mitigating the disaster? Inush, I couldn't hear you. Your, I think your volume went off. So the, can you hear me now? I can hear you. Yep. Yeah. So the question is, from the point of view of global health, what should be the strategic priorities in mitigating or adapting to climate change? Huh, great point or question. Um, I mean, first of all, just, just to kind of relate the question to the previous one, when there's wars to fight, no one asks, where's the money? You know, no one said, oh, we can't go to Afghanistan, to Korea, fight World War II, because there's not enough public money. It's created <laughs> out of thin air, <laughs> right? Similarly, you know, a pandemic like this one comes around and all of a sudden trillions are found, you know, the money tree does grow. So we need to realize that whether it's climate or health, the really important thing is to start treating it with the same level of urgency, but in a continuous basis, that we fight wars, right? When again, you know, money's created and also we end up having really interesting uh, partnerships between government and business, for example, with defense production procurement uh, acts. I mean, this is an example in the US where to fight World War II, they were able to very quickly in six months basically transform the automobile industry to produce what was required for the wartime effort. And yet we weren't able to do this with the COVID pandemic, right? We didn't end up having enough, still we don't have enough PPE equipment, you know, on the front lines. So really kind of having an outcomes-based budgeting, outcomes-based finance approach to the urgent problems we have today, whether it's climate or health, 
I think is one of the first things we need to do and not to focus on, you know, debt and the deficit, which we're already starting to hear now, you know, all this money that's going in now we hear, oh, we're gonna have to save later. So end up having more austerity later, which is going to undermine, for example, the public health system, which we know came to this crisis in a, in a difficult um, uh, a form. We need to resist that, right? I mean, even if you just use standard economic uh, 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 ratios like debt to GDP, what we really need is that long run sustainable growth in the denominator and make sure that what we're investing in actually creates that long run growth that has to be, again, healthy, sustainable, inclusive growth. But the irony is that if you just worry about the numerator, right, you end up actually not getting that long run growth. So the ratio of debt to GDP can actually rise phenomenally high, even when we're not actually putting that much public funding in. Um, and the link between climate and health, I think, is exactly that. It's how we frame the problem. And coming back to that issue that I raised before, which is not to look at climate, for example, as a sectoral problem, right, renewable energy, for example, but really looking at it as a transformation of all sectors. That, you know, is really important, for example, in how we can devise these more symbiotic public-private partnerships, uh, initially raised earlier. In Germany, for example, this is pre-COVID, when the steel sector asked for a large loan, as steel is asking globally, um, the German government said, fine, here's some money, but it's conditional on you reducing your material content of the whole value chain of steel production. And they did it through innovation. They weren't told how to do it. That would be micromanaging. They did it by investing in new um, uh, 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 methods of repurpose, reuse, and recycle across the whole value chain, they now have the greenest and most innovative steel sector in the world, right? So that the issue that I raised earlier, which is what does it mean to focus on a problem and get all your sectors to be part of the solution so that steel transforms in order to battle climate, I think is very important. And health and health and well-being and how we actually understand what it means to live in a, in a healthier way, but with well-being at the center of how we measure you know, uh, the economy in such a way that many economists have tried to do, um, uh, you know, is central then precisely in order to make sure that we're framing those objectives with an objective oriented uh, a policymaking process in a way that is, again, as, as, as ambitious, but also as specific in terms of how different sectors then become part of that solution. And that also requires really redesigning the tools. We shouldn't forget that when governments say, oh, there's not enough money, it's not only a framing problem, as I mentioned before, but if you look at, for example, public procurement, procurement is often 40% of a government's budget. If you can transform government purchasing, whether it's purchasing desks for schools, uh, school meals, uh, hospital beds, and turn that into green procurement, and think of all the procurement that departments of health have, and have green procurement inside departments of health, this is really a way to expand what we even think about when we think of an innovation budget. In the UK, by the way, our whole innovation budget for the whole country is about 10 billion pounds. Just the procurement budget of the Department of Transport is 40 billion pounds. So multiply that across all the different departments and start thinking of the procurement as a, let, um, a, a tool mm -hmm. to do innovation on the demand side and putting our objectives around you know, inclusion, sustainability, and health for all at the center of how we design that procurement, it just becomes very, you know, uh, it's that multiplier effect that we were talking about before, not only multiplier in terms of the effect on the whole economy, but multiplier in terms of the public funds themselves. 
Great, thank you. Next question, uh, I'm going to start with Dr. Tedros and then see if Claire or Mariano have anything to add. It's from Joe Searle of the Gates Foundation. And he asks, do you think there will be lessons captured on how, as a global community, we evolve our approach to health R&D, including more efficient ways to invest in global public goods like vaccines, which was a great development success, but unfortunately a complicated policy and inequitable delivery response in rich and low-income countries? Dr. Tedros, do you want to have a first crack at that question? More yeah. invest in global public goods like vaccines. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I said earlier, by the way, the ACT Accelerator could be, uh, uh, you know, shaped and um, actually uh, become uh, part of the pandemic preparedness um, to, uh, you know, uh, address the global public goods. Um, it's we we took, we sub suggested this as an end game for this uh, pandemic uh, but the principle is based on a global uh, uh, public good uh, to end this pandemic and this could be one of the pillars going forward um, you know in global epidemic prepare or pandemic preparedness and 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 response so i can say there's a very good question there's something that we have tested already. And the issue is how can we really take this even to a higher level and make it one of the components in our pandemic preparedness. But the whole principle is uh, global public, public good of all products, actually, not only vaccines, but therapeutics and diagnostics uh, as well. And the two objectives were accelerating development of the uh, products and fair distribution then this can be linked with research and development, as, as Joe said. Uh, as you know, we have an RD blueprint hosted in, in WHO, and we have an advisory group uh, chaired by Jeremy Farrar actually helping with the RND uh, uh, blueprint. And uh, the ACT Accelerator doesn't make any, any sense unless you link it with the RND and also the Disease X initiative the unknown disease. So you have the disease X, then the RD targeting disease X, and then the global public good that brings the um, solution. Uh, so we have the end-to-end -end already now, which we're using for this pandemic, that can be taken forward. Thank you. Claire, Mariana, did you want to add anything? Claire? I'll jump in very quickly on, on two additional points. I mean, I... I fundamentally agree with Dr. Tedros and think this has to be a global public good. But I think the question I have is how do we get it there? And I think there's two things we need to think about. The first is simply about capacity building to have facilities for R&D development all over the world, right? And we're seeing increasing investment in health science research in lower middle income countries. But we need to catalyze that. We need to, and we need to make sure that that is continued and sustained. Because, I mean, there's no reason to think that the next solution, the next healthcare solution is going to come from a, a lab in the US or Europe. It could just as easily and more likely will come from somewhere else in the world. So we have to ensure there is that capacity in the system with human resources trained and, and, and scientists that are kept in in countries and you know not suffering from brain drain to be able to do that research. And some research we did in over the last couple of years looking at health science research capacity building 
showed that, you know, crisis is often a window for opportunity for this investment. So you can look at what happened in Liberia in their health science research landscape in the wake of Ebola. They now have a thriving health research uh, science sciences um, community. Something similar happened in Uganda in the wake of the uh, HIV crisis there. And so how do we spur this then at the global level? And the second point is, how do we pay for it? I mean, this costs a lot of money and not uh, kind of money now, but how do we pay for it every year forevermore? And, you know, that needs co-financing in some way, particularly low and middle income countries aren't going to be able to pay that on their own. And so this is where I think, you know, the work of Mariano is so vital to, to really think about kind of how we can, can bring different parties together to finance some of this in the longer term. I'm going to ask Dr. Tadros maybe on the payment question. Can, can we... I just add one quick thing on, on that? Sorry. Just to emphasize what Dr. Tadros mentioned, which is this has to go beyond the COVID problem. We need to learn how to scale up these lessons across the whole health innovation area. And I know Joe knows about this. So if you look at how patents have evolved in the last 50 years, they've evolved in problematic ways, right? So if you have you know publicly funded R&D, we should make sure that patents aren't too upstream because that means that the research tools themselves are being patented as opposed to downstream areas. Um, patents have been too wide, used for strategic reasons, literally to block any sort of, you know, uh, competitor. And that's very different from the notion of collective intelligence. And they're too strong in terms of being hard to license. So how do we actually govern, you know, uh, uh, innovation for what I would call the common good? And I just want to throw that in there because the problem is public good, how it's at least been framed in economics, it it is within this restricted notion of fixing a market failure. Whereas everything we've been talking about, also in terms of how we shape healthcare systems to really reach all citizens, that really is about actually framing what is the overall objective? What are we even trying to do? And unfortunately, technical good doesn't help you. Dr. Tadros, just on this issue of how do we pay for it, does the WHO have the resources it needs to do its job and are they the right resources? Is your, to be, is your budget appropriately designed to deliver what the world expects from the WHO? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, bef- I, I actually... Uh, um, started talking about this before even I became DG and uh, many of my colleagues know um, the story I told uh, before even I became DG. Uh, the budget, WHO's budget is 2.4 billion US dollars a year. And the Presbyterian Hospital in New York uh, has a budget of 6.4 billion US dollars, <laughs> almost threefold. And this is Presbyterian is one hospital among many hospitals in New York. <laughs> and 2.4 billion is the whole budget for WHO and covers the whole, the whole wide world. So you can see our, our investment is, is really very, very minimal. And considering WHO's mandate, I mean, the funding is... Uh, to be honest, nothing. Uh, but not the quantity, actually, only. I mean, the amount of funding is important, but even the quality has a problem, meaning 80% of WHO's budget is earmarked and only 20% flexible. 
the asset from asset contribution. Do you know in 1980s it was the reverse actually, 80% flexible, 20% earmarked. So this is for member states and for the global, for the international community to solve. But we have started working on increasing our budget and also making it flexible. Uh, by introducing several changes as part of the transformation. One is we have the first investment case, the first strategic framework for resource mobilization, a partners forum to mobilize resources, and a new WHO uh, foundation. And we hope this will diversify our revenue source and not only bring money, but I think will bring... um, independence to WHO, because when it's earmarked, (laughs) our independence is being challenged as well. So for me, um, finance is related to independence, although not just, um, you know, finance to to do something, but uh, you should see it in relation to the independence of the organization. So it's 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 not it's it's far reaching what we're we're trying to do. But with the unprecedented nature of the pandemic now, uh, we have to even do more. Okay. And for high-income countries, they shouldn't consider investment in health, even when they support low-income countries as aid, but as investment in global security, meaning they're investing it for themselves, mm-hmm. meaning we are as strong as the weakest link, so we're strengthening the weakest link, so together we fight pandemics better. So investment in health can bring that global security. And that's why we have the triple billion, the health, you know, the healthy population and well-being, universal health coverage, emergency preparedness and response. And without investment, I think the global security could be in a problem. So we need a different type of investment that considers financing not as aid, but investment in our global health security. Why would countries invest in, uh, uh, you know, um, preparing themselves for any terrorist attack? They invest a lot. I think an attack by virus could be far reaching and far impactful than, than even terrorist attack that we have seen so far. I mean, it's the virus that has taken the whole world hostage, not a terrorist attack, actually, that we, <laughs> you know, that, that happened any any time in the past or, or now. So um, the investment is very important, but it should not be seen an investment in WHO only. It should be seen as an investment in global health, especially in our, you know, security, collective security. Thank you. Thank you. The next question I've got is for Claire, and then, I, and then I'll come to each of the panelists just to make any final remarks. Claire, this one is about care. It's from Claire Morris, Worldwide Hospice Palliative Care Alliance. And she asked, can you talk a bit about assessing the human and economic value of care for people with serious illness? How do we ensure that the human and economic assessments of value don't leave behind people who are seriously ill and need palliative care and who may not become economically productive? Thank you for that question. I'm not sure I'm quite qualified to answer it, but I think that points to the the centre of the issue, which is that there are so many things in our healthcare system which you can't attribute an economic value to. And, you know, people's lives and people's health is 
exactly that. And, you know, we have to move away from thinking about these issues purely in terms of, well, getting someone healthy so they can participate in a labour market and think about the kind of moral principles that we have of wanting to look after each other and of social human beings. And, you know, health is one of these few issues which really does blur all these issues together. And uh, at a policy space, we really have to make sure that we incorporate all these different types of care, all these different attributes that people have, and make sure that when we come to consider what we're going to prioritize, we don't marginalize, because it's these groups who are the most marginalized anyway. They're the ones who aren't, who are often outside of public policy interventions, outside of, of economic interventions. And so we there needs to make sure that there are due processes. And, you know, the way you get there is by asking and making sure that, you know, all policy you introduce, all interventions you bring, you do these equality impact assessments or whatever you might want to call them to make sure that you recognize, you know, the people who aren't seen often in the kind of routine policy production. Okay. One minute, maybe final remark from each of you. I'll start with you, Claire, then Mariana, and then Dr. Tadros. Any final thoughts on global health and the economy? Um, I was just going to, to, to echo the last question asked to Dr. Tedros about, about the WHO and its budget. I think that what we've seen increasingly is this, this mismatch between what WHO wants to do and what it can do with the budget it's given. And I think we really need to reconcile that because the world is asking a lot of the WHO and the WHO should be able to provide these public goods and should be able to provide this service. But it then becomes a perpetuating circle of if the WHO hasn't got the money to do it, then governments have less trust in it. And that is, uh, you know, I think a loss for all of us. I think every time I, 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 I teach WHO, and uh, I get all my students to think about uh, what would they do if you took WHO away? What would you create instead? And they all come back with creating the WHO. And so I think we need to invest in the WHO and make sure governments recognize really the potential it has if it was properly funded uh, and allowed and independently allowed to do what it needs to do. Thank you, Claire. Mariana, final word. Well, to echo that, I mean, how, how we can frame that is precisely through that concept I mentioned before, which is an outcomes-based budget. What is the World Health Organization for? What does it need to do? And then work backwards, what kind of budget does it need both in terms of the quantity, but also the quality in terms of what Dr. Tedros was saying in terms of the you know, flexible funds, for example, that it needs in order to act as an innovative institution. But also, you know, that first point I made about health for all has to be the objective. And then we work backwards in terms of what does it mean for accounting for health in our GDP measures, which still are extremely poor? What does it mean for the, the quality of the finance? Finance is it neutral. What does it mean for the public-private partnerships, the structures, those issues around conditionalities I mentioned? All of those need to be part of that solution if health for, uh, for all is the objective. And lastly, I will say here, and I know Dr. Tedros knows that, but a lot of people don't, the council will be only women. And when people ask us why, we will say, why not? Because <laughs> <laughs> we've had so many that are all just men. and nobody Exactly. <laughs> That's so funny. Dr. Tedros, last word. Yeah, the last word I, I concur with Claire and Mariana. That's the advantage of talking, you know, being the last speaker. But I would like to add to what uh, Mariana said. You know, when um, uh, board members are 10 men or council members are 10 men, we don't ask questions. So I don't know why people ask about uh, 
you know, why we, all council members are women when the council members are only women. So I think let's face it. Uh, and I'm glad you. <laughs> so the question is, why not? Uh, but that doesn't mean that we we we're not for gender balance. Uh, but I think um, we we have to also learn to live with the other, you know, all all ten women because we we have had many all all men groups for for uh, millennia. <laughs> so thank you so much again for having me. Uh, by the way, I used to have uh, friends in London School of Economics when I was doing my master's in London School of Hygiene in 19, early 1990s, 1990, 1991. Um, so I'm, I, I used to come in person to, uh, with my friends and now I, I, I'm, I joined you virtually. So glad to be home because I consider London School of Hygiene and Economics as, as, as home. Perfect. Well, uh, we yeah. much hope that we can welcome you in person soon. So hopefully we'll can. come again in person, yes. Exactly. Thank as soon you. as you defeat the pandemic for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so it just brings me to draw this to a close, and I wanted to thank our panelists, uh, Dr. Tadros, Claire Wenham, Mariana Mazzucato, for this uh, really uh, excellent conversation. I also wanted to thank our audience for, for all of the great questions and invite everyone to come back for more LSE events. Uh, you will always learn something, and they're always interesting. Thank you again, and to all of you, stay safe and goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.